four years old through the fourth grade, you can, you can be dismissed. You can follow my children out to the children's Bible time. The chicken nuggets and the tater tots, there they go. All right. Well, it's been a good meeting so far. It's been, we've had some wonderful crowds. I trust we're still inviting. We've got one more night to get some people out. And boy, the Lord's just been good to us so far and just so grateful to see. Before we get started tonight, I want to just change things up a little bit and uh, want to just start with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you'd help us as we look into the scripture this evening. Lord, it's, it's a need that we have. Lord, we know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and all Scripture is profitable. So as we look to your word tonight, I pray that you'd take your profitable word, and I pray that you'd do something great in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, we'll give you the praise and glory for what you do, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. My brother James grew up in the IT industry, the information technology industry. When I preach to people today, when I preach to young people today, Brother Corey, and I talk to them about a time when there was no internet, they look at me as if I had come off some planet somewhere, you know, beyond Mars or something like that. But I remember when the internet was all getting geared up. My brother was on the cutting edge of it as a teenager, and he's younger than I. I remember the bulletin board system. I remember when he talked my parents into getting a 28 kilobaud modem. Now, most people have no idea what that means today, but it had a very interesting sound. It sounded something like this. Some of you remember that sound, all right? You, you young people have no idea. If they don't have Wi-Fi, your life is at an end, okay? I understand that. If you get beyond the range of self-service, then uh, there is no more light. But uh, at any rate, in and, and those days, uh, there, there wasn't anything like that. We were just kind of getting started. And then initially, it was bulletin board systems where a few local computers would be connected together. And then pretty soon, we had something called the World Wide Web. And oh my, information technology is now part of our lives. Are there some people, they don't know what they would do without it. They don't know how they would function without instant access to the internet. And to prove my point, I just came without my cell phone. It's not on me anywhere. So not even Google can hear what I'm saying <laughs> at this point. At any rate, uh, I remember as all those things were getting started. I remember when people would buy computers. I mean, in those days, there was a lot of pressure put upon the uninitiated. you got to get a computer. you got to have this thing. It's going to make your life so much easier. Now, I don't know about those claims. Today, I know how to run a computer. I know how to do a lot on a computer. But it's been my experience that you, when you learn to do things on a computer, it saves you time that you then lose whenever the system breaks. So I think it's all a wash in the end, but at any rate, uh, and computers are part of our life to stay now, and they're getting smaller and smaller, and, and you understand all that. In the early days of computers, however, the uninitiated would call into technical support. I know this is hard for you to believe in the year 2021, but I, a dinosaur, a, reeling, a living relic of history, am here to tell you that in the early days, computer technical support was based in the United States. I know it seems hard to believe, but it used to be based in the United States. Brother Rob, you'd call somebody in Nebraska. He would say, yes, this is, and he'd give his name. This is Craig from Lincoln, Nebraska. How may I help you today? And you could understand every word that he said. 
And uh, he didn't he didn't he didn't speak Urdu as his primary language and then convert to English at the ripe old age of fifty-five. You know, he really knew how to speak the English language. And you know what? They found themselves getting ahead of themselves with customer support in those days. They would go, they would, these were people that were trained in the operating system. They were trained in the hardware. They knew how to, they knew the ins and outs of of the machine and all of that. And they found themselves on technical support, uh, being on the clock with all of their know-how, having to go back to some very basic things. Like, Brother Forsberg, did you turn it on? The computer's not going to work no matter how time, how many times you bang the keyboard if it's not turned on. But wait! There's a step we have to go to before the turn on step. Did you plug it in to the wall? Because without electricity, all of the knowledge of the operating system does you no good. And you know, they found that they had to put quick reference sheets in with new computers. been a while since I bought a new computer. Maybe they still come with quick reference sheets. I don't know. But they had, uh, they had these quick reference sheets that told you, before you try to do anything, plug it into the wall. Because without electricity, all the technology that you have just acquired will be of no use to you. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to preach to you a message that I've entitled, The Missing Ingredient. Now, if we were to get some preachers together, some independent Baptist preachers, and we were to gather them in a symposium here on the, on the platform, and we would begin to ask them questions, and I were to ask them, what do you think is a missing ingredient of our churches? Oh, they might say all kinds of things. Some might say the power of God. Some might say, I, I don't know, connection with God. I, I, don't, I don't know what preachers would say. But I want to preach to you about an ingredient without which everything we do here is of no value. I want you to take your Bible, if you would, and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church at Corinth that was an absolute disaster. It was a mess. They had all kinds of problems. They had problems regarding the Lord's table. They had problems regarding sin in the church. They had problems regarding the spiritual gifts. And it is in that section regarding the spiritual gifts that we find 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Where the Bible says in verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, and have not charity, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Now, we're going to keep our Bible open to this passage of Scripture, but I want us to look at what the Apostle Paul is saying here in this passage of Scripture. If I understand right, I I believe that we're talking about something in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning with verse 1, that is indispensable for everything that we do within the context of the local church. But you know, you understand today, ladies and gentlemen, we are living in a world that talks about love, they make movies about love, they talk about charity, but they have no idea what what it means from the Word of God. And I I submit to you furthermore that if the world is going to find out what charity is all about, they're not going to get a good idea from Nashville. 
By that I mean popular music. They're not going to get a good idea from Hollywood. By that I mean the film and entertainment industry. They're not going to get a good idea unless they have some believers that decide, I will show them the love of God and what it looks like. But not only am I to show the love of God to those outside this wa- these walls, I'm to show the love of God to people within these walls. And so I want us to look at what the Apostle Paul has to say about this, this very important ingredient of Christian charity. I want you to notice, number one, the importance of charity. The importance of it. Now, we've read verses 1 through 5, but it seems to me, as we read these verses, that I can do everything else right in the context of the local church. I can have my doctrine right. I can have my Bible right. I can have my philosophy right. But if I exercise all of those things with, uh, without charity and without love, I'm not getting anywhere. Notice the wording. Notice what he says. He says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Now, if you study the context, you're going to find that speaking in tongues was a big deal for the Corinthian church. Now, I don't know... I, I don't know... I don't know what tongues they were speaking in there, but I do know that what is called speaking in tongues today is not what's recorded in the New Testament. Okay, In the New Testament, when they spoke with other tongues, people understood them. When they spoke with other tongues in the Bible, it was tongues that people actually spoke. So, if I were to get up here, and I were to begin to speak Japanese to you, that would be equivalent to the Bible gift of tongues. Why is that? Because I've never studied the Japanese language before. I don't know how to say please, thank you, and you're welcome. I've even flown to Japan, and I still don't know the Japanese language, okay? All I did was land in the airport. Maybe you've done that in similar countries. But I don't know the Japanese language. And yet if I were to rise and begin to speak to you in perfect Japanese tonight, that is the biblical idea of speaking in tongues. We're talking about a language that was spoken by a certain group of people, and God's man stood to preach. He spoke in a language which he had never studied before, that's biblical tongues. Now, what they do today, they're saying banana backwards, just name all the Japanese, uh, Japanese motorcycles you can think of, Yamaha, Suzuki, Honda, and so forth. Uh, listen, that's not the biblical speaking in tongues. But the Apostle Paul said, suppose I had the ability to speak with every tongue of man... And not only that, suppose I could speak with the tongue of angels, whatever that is. Even if I had that ability and I had not charity, the Bible says in verse 1, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Now, if you were to come home to my house in Mississippi, you would find in our music room, you would find a large black case sitting there, and inside that black case is my brass instrument. I play a brass instrument. I am a tubist. In addition to playing the piano, I play the tuba. I have no idea what I was thinking, Brother West, when I chose those two instruments. Have you ever tried to carry either one of them? When I get to heaven, I've decided I'm playing, uh, I'm playing a, a mouth harp and a piccolo. That's what I'm going to do. I can stick one in either back pocket and go and do whatever i got to do. But the piano and the tuba, oh my. So, But that, when he says the sounding brass, he doesn't mean the tuba. 
He doesn't mean a trumpet. He doesn't mean a trombone or a euphonium. He means something in the percussion section. Imagine your fifth grader coming home to you tomorrow. Mom, Dad, I've got good news for you. I'm joining the band. Oh, that's wonderful, son. What are you playing? A clarinet? No. What are you playing? A trumpet? No. I'm playing the cymbals and it's time for me to practice. Crash, crash, crash. Oh, no, I got that wrong. Crash, crash, crash. Oh, no, I got it wrong again. Can you imagine? You would look at that, at that uh, son or daughter and you would say, listen, go play on a hill far away. But give us some peace. Because those instruments in the absence of the rest of the orchestra do not bring peace. They bring irritation. You understand what the Apostle Paul is saying? My giftedness apart from a love for people, becomes an irritant. Look at verse 2. We're speaking of the importance of Christian charity. What is he saying? The Bible says in verse 2, and though I have the gift of prophecy. Well, in 1 Corinthians, he hasn't said much about the gift of prophecy, but he's about to. If you go to chapter 14, you're going to read a lot about the gift of prophecy. Prophecy is better than tongues, young people. You listening back there? Tongue, uh, it's better than the gift of tongues. Because prophecy is for the edification of the whole church. Oh, that's good news. Well, prophecy, you speak in everybody's language so everybody can understand and everybody can be edified. But the Apostle Paul said, suppose I did have that gift of prophecy. And suppose I further had the ability to understand all mysteries. Oh, there's some things in the Word of God that were not revealed in the Old Testament, but now they are revealed. And boy, the Apostle Paul was given a great deal of an insight into these mysteries, and uh, he writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit about them. So he says, let's suppose that I had the gift of prophecy. Let's suppose that I could understand all mysteries. And let's suppose that I had all knowledge. And let's suppose that I have all faith so that I could remove mountains. Look at all of these gifts. All of this ability. All of this supernatural gifting of Almighty God. I have all of these things. And if I have not charity, I am nothing. You understand today, we live in a society that loves to lift people up according to their giftedness. You ever notice that? I like to watch basketball in the month of March. Anybody like March Madness? I love basketball in the month of March. I've even converted my wife, Brother Jeremy, to a basketball fan in the month of March. That's a pretty big thing. She didn't grow up while watching any athletics of any kind. But uh, I haven't gotten her past shouting at the TV screen. I keep telling her, sweetheart, they can't hear you when you shout at the TV screen. But anyway, we have a good time watching basketball. And uh, I, I love to watch basketball. But you know what really gets my goat when I'm watching basketball? The announcers want to say about this particular individual, this is such a talented kid. Well, he may be talented, and I'm not going to dispute that, but if he doesn't learn to work, he's never going to get very far. And we want to magnify talent. Hear me, we sometimes magnify talent in the church, and God says right here in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 2, you can have all the gifting in the world, but if it is not exercised with a love for those that you come into contact with, the Bible says, you're nothing and I'm nothing. Verse 3, notice what he says. We're speaking of the importance of Christian charity. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. That's what we normally think of as charity, right? I'm going to take my junk... And I'm going to give it to this organization so they can sell my junk to somebody else at a lower price, but, but they got it for free, so it's making them a profit. That's normally what we think of as charity. 
I'm going to give this to some less fortunate person than I. The Apostle Paul is referencing that, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Listen, nobody's given everything they have to feed the poor. Nobody has freely given their body to be burned. Now, sometimes our bodies of, of Christians have been taken and they've been burned. But nobody freely volunteers for that. And the Apostle Paul says, even if I were to do that, if I exercise it without charity, I am nothing. Do you understand today that you and I can have everything in place, but if we endeavor to do this business of serving God without, the, without charity, without a genuine love for people, it doesn't get us anywhere. Listen to how he puts it in Colossians 3 and verse 14. And above all these things, have charity among yourselves. Uh, excuse me, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5. Now the end of the commandment, the goal, the mark, the aim, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned. I wonder what, what some people would say if we said, what is the end of everything that we do as a child of God? Or somebody would say, well, the end of everything that we do is holiness. And certainly God wants us to be holy. Some people would say, well, the end of everything that we do is, uh, is soul winning. And certainly God wants us to win souls to Christ. But the Bible says in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5, the end of the commandment is charity. I mean, if you're doing what you're doing without genuinely loving people, you're wasting your time. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. He goes on to say, the Lord Jesus said in John 13, verses 34 and 35, we know the verses, don't we? The new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you told a King James Bible. That's not what it said. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have the right kind of music. That's not what he said. He said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one toward another. Can I tell you, my friend, when you and I do not have love toward one toward another, especially for those within this local church, people on the outside conclude they may be a lot of things, but they're not Christian. I wonder, based on the love that you have and the love that you show for others, would other people accuse you of being a Christian? According to our Lord's words. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 speaks of the importance of charity. I want you to notice what he says in verse 4. Beginning in verse 4, he begins to give us the ingredients of charity. What does charity look like? What makes up this thing of Christian charity? What are its traits? Notice what he says. He says, number verse 4, charity suffereth long. Charity suffereth long. What is he talking about there? It means that charity takes the long look. You understand, if you love someone... There are going to be times you're going to have to take the long look. You're going to, it's going to have to be a durative thing and maybe, just maybe, you're not going to give that person that you love the best that they think for themselves right now because you have something better for them in the future. Hey, isn't that the way our God does with us? We got saved, but the best is yet to come, right? I mean, the best is not in this life. God is reserving something better for us, but it's in the future. And in the meantime, there's a waiting process through which you must go and through which I must go. That's the way our God does. He's only embodying for us a Christian charity. Listen, you and I ought to take the long look from, from time to time as well. He says, charity suffereth long. That speaks of charity's duration. Charity takes the long look instead of being short-sighted. Look at verse 4. Charity is kind. 
That speaks of charity's disposition. Can I tell you something? Somewhere along the line, I don't know when it was, I don't know where it was, and I don't know how it was, but we got the idea that it's funny and cute to be unkind and rude to people. And now that we have online interactions, it's worse than it's ever been before. You know, I can go up to somebody and uh, I can take a look at him face to face and I'm probably not going to be rude to his face. But man, give me the anonymity of looking at nothing but my computer screen and I can say all kinds of things with my fingers. Well, you can do that, but you need to understand that's not Christian charity. Because one of the important ingredients of charity is charity is kind. It speaks of charity's disposition. Notice what it says in verse 4. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself is not puffed up. That speaks of charity's demeanor. What does charity look like? Charity does not, is not full of pride. I'm going to tell you something. You and I often think of pride and humility as opposites, right? Pride is the opposite of humility. And that's true. But in this passage of Scripture, the Bible also tells us that pride and charity are opposites. You cannot be lifted up with pride and full of self and love other people the way you ought to at the same time. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, the Bible says. That's the, that's the ingredients of Christian charity. That's what it looks like. The world sings in their songs, I want to know what love is. My friend, if you want to know what love is, you've got to go to this old book. You've got to go to the Word of God because you're not going to find it described or defined any other place. The Bible is defining and describing it here though. The Bible says there's a, there's a duration of charity. There's a disposition, a demeanor. Notice what the Bible says. Charity doth not behave itself unseemly. Now that speaks of charity's discipline. Charity's discipline. Charity doth not behave itself unseemly. Many years ago, I was really bothered in my mind, about some things that had happened. Specifically, I was bothered by the fact that when I asked my wife to marry me, it just wasn't the romantic setting that I had hoped it would be. Now today, when, when a guy asks a girl to marry him, I mean, they got to they got to put the whole thing on Instagram, you know. I heard about some guy in Oklahoma City that was down along the river walk and he had taped a stereo system underneath one of the benches so that when he and his date sat down immediately, music began to play. I looked at him and said, you know, they ought to lock you up. Because you make the rest of us unromantic slobs look bad. I mean, there's a problem there. There's a problem there. I think it sets the expectation way too high for those of us who don't have a romantic bone in our bodies. When I asked my wife to marry me, I was going to get down on one knee to propose to her when I realized I was standing in motor oil. And I said, well, that's probably not a good idea. So I kind of faked it, you know. I got down like this. And it sort of looked like I was on one knee, but I was faking it. I was faking it, Molly. I wasn't really down on one knee. And that had bothered me. It had bothered me for years. And so we were coming up on the anniversary of the very date that I asked my wife to marry me. And we happened to be in Southern California. It was the month of February. Well, my, at the time, our friends Ken and Dolly Warner lived out there. And Ken and Dolly Warner 
Well, he was a police officer, and he was a restaurant connoisseur. You can't even say that without, you know, doing your fingers the right way. He was a connoisseur. I mean, this man had gone out to eat, I think, in every decent restaurant in all of Southern California. He knew San Diego County very well by virtue of the fact that he loved to take his wife out to eat and by virtue of the fact that he was a police officer. So I went to him and I explained the situation to both Ken and Dolly. I said, now, now listen, I said, here's the problem. When I asked my wife to marry me, it wasn't a very romantic thing, and I want to make up for that. I want to atone for that. And so I said, can you name me a a romantic restaurant? Because I don't even know what the word means. I said, can you help me with this? You know this area. I'm just a dumb slob, grew up roofing in South Carolina. I don't know anything about this. And they said, yeah, I think we can help you, Paul. They said, "There's there's a restaurant that sits right on the edge of the Pacific Ocean. He said, as a matter of fact, in the summertime at high tide, the waves lap against the walls of this restaurant. Now, in, in, in the wintertime, the, the tides don't come in that strong, but uh, they said, you'll be able to sit and watch the sun set over the Pacific Ocean. Is that a good thing? Yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Because I had tried to take my wife to a sunrise on the Atlantic side. And that just wasn't real. The fact that we had to be there at 4.30 a.m., it just wasn't, wasn't the romantic setting that I had hoped it was going to be. And, you know, I, what do I know? I'm just a, just a roofer from South I don't know anything about this stuff. And so they said, yeah, why don't you take, why don't you take your wife to this restaurant? It's called The Marine Room. It's been there, since I think, since the 1930s or something like that. I said, okay, okay, that's fine. All right, all right, that sounds good. And so I, I told one of my other buddies, uh, Roger Reese, I said, you know, Brother Roger, I said, uh, I'm all excited about this. I'm going to take my wife on a really romantic date. I don't know that I've ever taken her on a romantic date, but this may be the first in so many years of marriage. And I said, I'm kind of excited about it. And he said, well, where are you going? I said, I'm going to a place called La Jolla, California. He said, I hope you're not planning to take your dually. I said, whoa. What's wrong with my dude? He said, La Jolla has the highest per capita income of any city in the United States of America. And he said, it would not be a good idea for you to take your fossil fuel guzzling dually into La Jolla. Blah, 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 blah. You know, black smoke is billing out. He said, that would just not be good. He said, to give you an idea, Brother Paul, they have their own Lamborghini dealership. I guess Lamborghini would have to have dealerships. It never crossed my mind, Brother West. A Lamborghini dealership. And so I said, okay. He said, here are the keys to my hybrid. This will be much better. I said, okay. So I took his hybrid down there. And you know, we got out at this, at this restaurant there. I, didn't, I, I just knew, I knew that as I got out with my wife and as we walked into this restaurant, that all the eyes of these wealthy snobs from La Jolla, California were going to look at me and they were going to say in their hearts, Poser, you're not one of us. You're just a slob. You have no idea how to behave in this rich man's place and this rich man's restaurant. I just knew that's the way it was going to be. But I thought, well, I'm going to fake it anyway. I'm going to make them think that I really have so many digits behind uh, 
know so many zeros behind the digits of my bank account that this, this restaurant is no problem and this is no object here. The truth of the matter is, had a friend of mine, another friend of mine in California, not given us a special gift and said, Brother Paul, I want you to do something fun with this. Had he not done that, I wouldn't have been able to afford the Marine Room. I finally figured out when I looked at their menu online that these numerical codes over there beside the French words, that was the price. But he had given me this money and so I thought to myself, well, we're going to try it. I remember going out, as you came into the marine room, you came in the upper level and then there was a spiral staircase that went down to the main level that was literally at sea level. From there, you were on the level with the, with the waves as they were lapping up on the beach as the sun set over the Pacific Ocean. As I walked down that staircase, I could feel invisible needles sticking in my spine because I knew I was doing something I was not supposed to do. That ever happened to you? I just knew, oh, these people are going to find out. They're going to know. They're going to know that I'm just a poor slob that got a special gift and that's the only reason I'm the... You know what? I didn't have to worry. I was the best behaved person at the restaurant other than the Japanese businessmen that were sitting in there. The guy next to me just, I mean, made an absolute fool of himself. And the girl, the women that were with him, they made fools of themselves. But as the... As the sun was setting over the Pacific Ocean, I did get down on one knee this time and I asked my wife to marry me all over again. And we're living on brownie points to this day. Amen. But uh, at any rate, I, I need not have worried. Here I was thinking, they have a standard and they want me to live up to that. They didn't have any standards at all. They didn't care. But hear me, if you love somebody, you care. And there are things that you just won't do if you love someone because charity doth not behave itself unseemly. That's charity's discipline. I want you to notice charity has a desire. Notice what it says. It says, seeketh not her own. Again, someone who is filled with love for someone else, they're not seeking to, they're not seeking the limelight. They're not seeking any of that. That's just part of charity's desire. I want you to notice what the Bible says further. Seeketh not her own. Notice what it says. Is not easily provoked. Well, that speaks of charity's durability. It's not easily provoked. Can I tell you something? It seems like we have a culture today that is looking for something to get offended about. What? You did this and you said that or you didn't do this or you didn't say that. Oh my goodness. Can we not, can, can we not just move past that tonight? Can we not just understand that, Christi that, that Christian charity, if I love you as I ought to love you as a Christian, and if you love me as you ought to love me as a Christian, we're not going to go around with our feelings on our shirt sleeves. We're not going to fly off the handle. We're not going to get ticked off. We're not going to get mad at Brother West because he took my seat in church. Or we're not going to get mad at, uh, at, uh, at Brother Rob because he stole my parking place at church. Or, or whatever. We're not going to do that because somebody said this on Facebook. Or that up on their wall, or whatever it may be. Listen, if, if, if you think that someone has something against you, go to them personally. And hear me, if you can, don't call them. Go to see them. And certainly, don't get into resolving conflict via social media. May God help us. But the truth is, if we love each other, we're not going to get offended. 
That's just, an in, that, that's just one of the ingredients of Christian charity. There's a durability about it. It's not easily provoked. Notice not only a duration, a disposition, demeanor, a discipline, a desire, and a durability, but there's a decision that charity is made. The Bible says, thinketh, no, evil. You ever met folks that want to assume the worst about other people? It's not right. It's not Christian charity. If I love you in the Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be slow to think evil of you. Listen, there is enough evil in this world without you and I assuming that there's more to exist. There's enough evil in this world. There's enough wickedness to be dealt with. And the Bible says, Christian charity thinketh no evil. Notice, he goes on, not only is there a decision here, there's a discretion here. Notice in verse 6, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. What is that saying? Christian charity rejoices not when you hear that somebody else falls or something like that. No, we rejoice in what is true. You want it. The world says, I want to know what love is. Well, I tell you, there's where it is, ladies and gentlemen. And, and if they are ever going to know what love is, it's going to be because you show them and it's going to be because I show them. We are not only to love each other, but we are to love them, the unsaved outside these walls. That's the way we're supposed to be. And if we're not that way, the Bible says all of our giftedness, all of our service to God means nothing. The importance of Christian charity, the ingredients of Christian charity. I want you to notice, finally, the integrity of Christian charity. Parts of the whole. It's interesting. There's, a, there's an interesting parallelism in verse 7. Notice what it says. It says, Beareth all things. Then it says in the last phrase of the verse, Endureth all things. So at the beginning and at the end are these two parallel statements. Beareth all things. Charity beareth all things. And charity, a charity endureth all things. I want you to understand this. There is a hurt that comes along with Christian charity. Beareth all things. What does that mean? Well, beareth all things. We talked about the illustration of a man with a bundle of shingles on his back. That's not fun. All of you have, all, all of you that have worked in, in different fields have, have picked up things that are heavy. We saw men today at, uh, at the AD Honey operation. I hope I said all that right. It was, it was pretty amazing. We were invited out there. They said, look, this is the last day that we're getting honey out of the boxes. And so I saw men picking up these boxes. But you know what? It takes a day after day to pick up those boxes. These men, these men had to work hard. I mean, they have it there and the little thing comes up and tries to make it easier for them. But boy, they gotta pick that up. They gotta bear something. I wonder, I want you to know, when you love someone, hear me now, when you love someone, you will have burdens to bear that you would otherwise not have to bear if you went through life not loving people. By the way, you should think about that in the context of your pastor and his family. Because they love you, there are burdens that they bear that they wouldn't otherwise have to bear if they just didn't care. Teenagers, that's true of your parents. If your parents love you, there are burdens that they bear that they don't have to bear. But they only do so because they love you. That's just what that's just what Christian charity is all about. The Bible says, beareth all things. And then in the very last phrase of the verse, endureth all things. 
The, I, I wish I could tell you the, the things that have happened to me. Somebody comes to me and says, well, Brother Paul, it must be nice to be an evangelist because you don't have to deal with the problems of people all the time. Now, I don't know this. I can't empirically prove it. But I think as an evangelist, I deal with all the problems that a pastor has to deal with except that when the problems come to me, it's the pastor that's involved in them. I wish it weren't true. I wish I didn't have to tell you about marriages that are broken up by people who are in the ministry. I wish I didn't have to tell you about people that fall into sin who are ordained to the gospel ministry. I wish I didn't have to tell you about that. But as an evangelist, that, that tends to come to me. I remember a man called me one day and he said, Brother Paul, he said, because, of, uh, because your wife has a social media account, I am going to cancel you. He said, I'm not canceling the revival meeting. We're going to have somebody to come and preach, but I'm canceling you. And I remember, I remember the, just feeling that and thinking, what? I'm happy to report that in process of time, the Lord mended that relationship. And today, it's as if that had never happened. Praise God. But you know what? Had I not cared about that guy, I could have written him off. But when you care, there's a burden to be borne. There are things that have to be endured. I want you to understand, if you come to an old-fashioned altar tonight and say, Dear God, would You bring to my mind specific areas where I can show the love of God to people, not only in this church, but to people outside this church. If you come in and you, you make such a commitment to God tonight, I want you to understand what you're getting into. There's a hurt of Christian charity. You're going to get burned if you love people. You know, sometimes I fear that because we have been burned by loving people, we close our hearts. And we say, I'm not going to reach out anymore. Aren't you glad our Lord Jesus didn't do that? When He was reviled, He reviled not again. When He suffered, He threatened not, but committed Himself to Him that judgeth righteously. I want you to notice in verse 7 of the integrity of charity, these parallel things that come together. Not only is there a hurt here in verse 7, but there's also a hope. Notice the Bible says, charity believeth all things. Charity hopeth all things. Do you understand? There's a, there's a connection there as well. Yes, there, there are times when you and I are going to have to bear. Yes, there are times when we're going to have to endure. But oh, praise God, there are times when we can believe in people and we can see the love of God as it flows from us to them and we can see it do a great work in their lives and in their hearts. What a blessing. I don't know his name. I don't know if he walked in tonight. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be able to recognize him. And in fact, I don't even know that he's still alive. There's a lot of things I don't know about him. I wonder to myself what what he thought as he would prepare every month, or maybe it was every week. And uh, I, I don't. I don't know how he prepared. I don't even know what religious denomination he was. Maybe he was Independent Baptist. Maybe maybe he was something else. I I don't know any of that. But let me tell you what I do know about this individual. I do know that on a regular basis he would get in his car and he would drive to the state penitentiary. And there in the state penitentiary, he would go into a room that had been set aside by the prison, and there he would invite prisoners to come in so he could preach the Gospel to them. Now, I don't know if there were times when he wondered if he was doing any good. I don't know if there were times when he wondered, I'm, you know, these people don't want to hear what I had to say. They're just coming so they can get out of their cell. That's certainly true when it comes to services and, and to men behind bars. I've been there. i preached to them. And I know that sometimes they're there not so that they can hear the Word of God, but so that they can mock the Word of God and just get out of their cell. 
I don't know if those thoughts, I don't know if thoughts of quitting ever went through his mind. I don't know. But I do know this. One day he got out of that car like he had done many times before with his Bible under his arm. He passed through all the security of that state penitentiary and he made his way to that room. And as inmates began to file in, he did his best to reach out to them and to talk to them and to converse with them. And finally, when the doors were shut and all the inmates were there that were coming, he opened his Bible and he preached the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I know that in that state penitentiary sat a 23-year-old man that had been in his, his second time behind bars in the state pen. And that day, he trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior. That man was my father, ladies and gentlemen. That's my father. And Brother Forsberg, I, I, I wonder to myself, every time I read this verse, I, I think of that man. I have no idea who he was. I have no idea. But I have to think that somewhere along the line, through temptations and through, and through uh, ideas of possibly quitting and possibly not going back and possibly not going through all the effort and possibly not doing it this time, through all those temptations, that there had to be something in the back of his mind that believed all things and that hoped all things and that ended up with him going to that prison that day, preaching the Gospel and seeing a 23-year-old man get saved. And as I said earlier in this meeting, it altered the course of generations. All because this man loved. And the Christian charity that he had in his heart motivated him to hope and to believe. Why is it that the Bible Baptist Church will insist on going out to find boys and girls who are perhaps unchurched and whose parents don't come to church why is it that we will insist on bringing them in and giving them the gospel? Because we love them. And charity hopeth all things and believeth all things. We have the hope that one day God's going to get a hold of their hearts and one day they're going to trust the Lord Jesus as Savior. One day they're going to follow the Lord in believers' baptism. And one day, they're going to grow up and as they go to start their own families, they're going to say, by the grace of God, my family is going to be different from the family that I came from. And I'm not going to do it that way, but I'm going to, I'm going to marry the person that God has for me and we're going to stay together in the way that God has prescribed in His Word and we're going to keep doing that. You understand, the Gospel is in the business of doing that today. The Gospel is in the business of putting families back together. The Gospel is in the, in the business of keeping families together. The Gospel is in the business of changing the culture. It's in the business of doing that one person at a time. But you know what it's going to take? It's going to take some people that know Jesus Christ as Savior and they're going to have to say to the Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit, I surrender myself. I'll go. I'll bear whatever has to be born. I'll endure whatever has to be endured. But all the time, dear Holy Spirit, would You keep the flame of hope and belief alive in my heart that God will do great things as I love these people. That's for all of us. It's for all of us. The Lord Jesus, as He came to Calvary, is the perfect example of love. How about Luke chapter 23 and verse 34? Father, give them. For they know not what they do. 
How about Matthew 26, 67, and 68 when they smote Him on the face? He proved that charity is not easily provoked. How about in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 44, the Bible says they cast things into His teeth. They hurled insults at Him in His face, spit in His face, buffeted Him, and He proved then that charity is kind. We could go through the Bible. We could look at our Savior. We could see examples of His love. But the Bible says this in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. I want to ask you tonight, child of God, how's your love life? Your love to people around you. Father, thank you for this opportunity. And I pray, dear Lord Jesus, that you'd speak to us. Lord, I.